This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University. Today, you'll be hearing from Dr. Nagai Yin Yip of Columbia Earth and Environmental Engineering, interviewed by Dr. Davina Ku from Columbia Tech Ventures, our office, during one of our office's lunch and learn sessions. Dr. Yip's lab focuses on new ways to remove salt from hypersaline solutions to make sure that the water becomes usable again, as well as ways to recover precious resources from waste streams. He'll tell us why traditional methods of making usable water, typically via condensation, is so energy intensive, and why his approach, which he likens to using a sponge to soak up and then expel water, is so much cheaper, less resource hungry, and more flexible. He'll also explain why this is critically important to lower the environmental impact in industrial production and mining, as well as to help ensure clean water supplies in places like Arizona and Nevada that aren't near the ocean. Finally, he'll talk about his experience launching his startup Trident Desalination and his lessons learned as a scientist entrepreneur. So I, I can kick us off. It's, um, it's my pleasure to introduce Professor Nayan Yip of the Earth and Environmental Engineering Department. Um, so as you may have heard a little bit earlier, uh, Yip's research focuses on developing new methods and materials for uh, energy efficient desalination and resource recovery from waste streams. Um, so over the past few years, we've been working closely with Professor Yip on a very exciting and versatile technique that he has developed for desalination of hypersaline brines. Um, the technique is called temperature swing solvent extraction, um, or TSSE for short. Um, so Yip, maybe we can start with um, telling everyone a little bit more about sort of, you know, what it is exactly that TSSE does, you know, how does the technique work mm -hmm. and why is it so exciting and what can it be used for? Okay, so so maybe a, a good starting place would be to, to talk a bit about um, how we are increasingly relying on desalination to augment our water supplies, right? So how much water that we get is that that is the quantity of water. That is something that is that's finite, right? Um, which is a bit different when we think of, let's say, for example, energy. We can get energy from various means, but we used to do a lot of burning of fossil fuels, and now we're switching over to using turbines and solar energy and hydroelectric, and potentially in the future, fusion as well. But the water is just water. There's no substitute for it. Um, and the quantity that we get is the quantity that we, that we get. So there, there are pretty much only two other ways for us to, to change that equation, right? One is that we start to reuse more and more of it, right? Try, try to turn uh, the way we use water into a circular loop that is known as a circular economy approach. And um, there are technologies to do that. I say, for example, in California, there are places where they're doing water reclamation, taking wastewater and getting the water out from that. The other alternative would be to do desalination because we have plenty of water in the oceans. Now, we have been doing desalination. We as in society, um, civilization, have been doing desalination for a while now, over uh, half a century. And we've been, over the years, getting very good at that. So we fine-tune the engineering, optimize all the processes. But what we are not able to do is to really tackle anything that is saltier than seawater. So when we do seawater desalination, we are great. But when there's more salt in the brine than seawater, that's where there are no good technologies out there. Um, and what pretty much the incumbent technology for that is, is just evaporating water and then condensing it, which is hugely, hugely energy intensive. 
Um, now, some of you might be asking, why are we interested in doing something which is saltier than um, seawater? A couple of uh, reasons for that. When we move away from the coast, right, let's say for in a place like Arizona, Nevada, uh, parts of Texas as well, there are water issues there. They are not anywhere close to the coast. So they have to turn to groundwater. When they start drilling into the ground, they pull the water out. The groundwater itself has some salt. Now, as you get more and more of the water out, what is left behind is going to get saltier and saltier and saltier. So at some point, we're going to pass the salt concentration in seawater. And now what we have, technique, the technologies that we have are no longer good for that and we are stuck. We have this giant volume of salty brine, nowhere to dispose of it, and it becomes a problem. It becomes so much of a problem that if there's no good solution to manage this brine, they cannot do groundwater desalination, they pretty much do not have the water supply. So there has got to be technologies that, that we will want to use to treat the brine. So this is where I think our technology comes in. And I mentioned earlier that the way that we're currently, currently doing it is evaporating water and condensing it. So that's, that's very energy intensive. So we wanted to go about doing that desalination without turning liquid water into gas and then condensing it back into a liquid again. Right, so we want to avoid that change in the phase. And so the technique that we have is essentially a, a switchable solvent that we are using as a sponge. Right, so you can think of this, this switchable solvent as, as, as a material that is very sensitive to a trigger. Now the trigger here that we are using is a temperature change. Right, so um, in its initial, you can think of it as the ground state, it likes water. Right, so it's kind of like a, 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 a dry sponge. When we take that sponge and we contact it with the brine, it's going to soak up all the water, but just the water, the salts are going to be left behind. And now when we have the sponge, right, we introduce the trigger, the property is going to change drastically from it being very uh, attracted to water. Now it doesn't like water anymore. So it's, it's, it's analogous to taking the sponge and now squeezing it. So all the water that we have extracted previously gets squeezed out and that's how we produce our fresh water. But so during the whole process, liquid water stays as liquid water and that's important. That allows us to, to overcome this whole energy intensiveness of doing the high salinity desalinations. So that, that in essence is how the technology works. And um, I think the big takeaway there is that um, the approach of our technology is radically different from what is out there in the market. What is out there in the market is, again, evaporating water and condensing it. There's also no membranes as well. Um, I mentioned seawater desalination. The technology there is reverse osmosis. It's great, but it stops working beyond seawater concentration because of the limitations of the membrane. So we did away with the need for a membrane as well. And that, in essence, is how the technology works. Um, yeah, is that a good overview, Davina? Yeah, I, I guess for, for context, could you give us an idea of sort of like what is the temperature differential mm -hmm. that you need for, for your technique for TSSE versus the sort of traditional like condensation mm -hmm. methods? Yeah, so, so I think an, another um, unique feature of the technology is that we can utilize relatively mild temperature swings. Um, so the, the, the grounds that I mentioned where you initially contact the brine, we usually do that at ground room temperature. But we can do that at 15 degrees Celsius. I'm more familiar with um, degrees Celsius and not Fahrenheit. So, uh, 15 degrees Celsius, which is a, a, a cool spring day, 
um, and up to even use something like 25 degrees Celsius. And we can also use lower temperatures as well, five degrees Celsius, 25. And then for the high temperature, we go up to around um, 60 to 80 degrees Celsius. Uh, that is well below the boiling point of water. Right, so this is a relatively mild temperature swing, and I think that's where it can be advantageous as well, because now we can start to look at energy sources, more sustainable energy sources. We do not need to burn fossil fuels. For example, we can use um, low concentration solar collectors. We can use that heat, bring the temperature up to around 60 to 70 or 80 degrees Celsius, and that's going to drive our whole process there. That's great. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about the sorts of applications where TSSE would be particularly useful? Like what sorts of hypersaline brines in particular mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. would be well suited for this treatment? Right. So, so I think um, uh, one of the, the practical application that there was um, um, kind of driving us to this uh, research towards this area was um, um, when we do any, um, any drilling underground, right? We're going to get a lot of uh, formation water that comes up along with it. Right? And sometimes this formation water is mixed with other chemicals that are being used in the drilling. Um, and most of the time, the formation water contains a lot of salt. So these are hypersaline uh, brine streams. Um, so and we're trying to move away from fossil fuels, right? But we're still, right now, as a current, still pretty dependent on fossil fuels, including natural gas. When we do hydraulic fracturing, right, a lot of the natural gas comes out, the water comes out as well. The ratio is actually um, something like between 1 to 10 to 1 to 100 volume uh, weight-wise. Right, so for, for all this natural gas that we are we're producing from hydraulic fracturing, we're also producing a lot of this, uh, we're having a lot of this water, very salty brine that comes out. So our, our initial motivation was really to, to look at that, whether we can do a better job of treating it. Because eventually right now what they're doing it is they're storing them in huge ponds and they're just sitting in all. Um, it is very expensive to treat them at the moment. So everyone is just storing onto them. And this is something that uh, um, I keep getting interest uh, from people who, who are in this area. Every, every week or so, I get an email from someone who, who either is operating one of these sites or um, has a client working on one of, one of these sites and they need, they need a solution for this. Um, but I think the technology itself is, is even broader, more, can be more broadly applied. Um, going back to the example of groundwater desalination in places like Arizona and Nevada, this is, this is a huge uh, issue as well. This is why we're working with the U.S. and Bureau of Reclamation. We're looking at water issues in the West, and they're very interested because this is, this is really um, the, the pain point for them. Right? If you do not have a good solution to manage the brine, you cannot have water, and this is essential for the economy, for the population in that area. Um, something which is a, perhaps a bit greener will be looking at um, treating brines for lithium production. Now we are going to need a lot of lithium because we're going to need all these energy storage, including um, electric vehicles. The projection is somewhere around 800% um, growth uh, by 2030 relative to 2020. We're going to need a whole lot more lithium. Right now, uh, one of the main sources of lithium is coming from the lithium triangle in South America. Uh, 
Chile, Bolivia, and uh, Argent Argentina. I hope I got those three countries correct. But uh, Chile right now is the main producer. What they do is, is effectively um, the lithium is present in, in these brines, right? They're pumping it out. They're spreading this brine out in large surface area. These are known as salt flats, and they're just sitting there and waiting for the water to evaporate. And when sufficient water evaporates, after all the other salts dropped out, finally, uh, lithium carbonate drops out from the solution. And that's what they harvest and they use uh, to further process for lithium batteries. So, so that is a, a, a ginormous area. There huge land use, very slow production. The water stays there uh, for something like 18 months. Now, we could potentially come in and speed up the whole process, right? Instead of just letting nature very slowly and very gradually evaporate the water off, we can actively sponge out the water, accelerate the whole process and precipitate the, or produce the lithium in a, in a much more efficient engineered way. So it seems like this is um, a really a, a sort of platform technology that has a lot of broad applications. And I'm glad you mentioned the sort of number of inquiries you've been kind of consistently getting um, for this technology, I, I think ever since that 2019 paper first came out. I, I think at one point we counted, right? And there were inquiries from every continent other than Antarctica at this point. And, and maybe we need yeah. to update that, but it, it's been incredible. Um, the, the sort of outpouring of interest we've seen. Um, I think it, it would be interesting to for folks to hear about, I, I guess, sort of what was the thought process or selection process in, you know, there's all these potential applications, all this interest from different sort of commercial ent entities, potential end users, you know, how did you go about sort of figuring out, you know, what, what was the right, who was the right partner to work with on commercializing this technology? Mm -hmm. that, that's, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's, a, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think maybe the, the, the candid answer here is this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out as well. Right? This is not commercializing a technology from a lab, bringing that to the market. It's not something I've done before. So this is, this is my first rodeo as well. Uh, and as, as good engineers um, know a bit about uh, technology to market as well, having taken, taken some classes, read a couple of books. Um, so it's kind of like in a high level, we know some of these things. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, a lot of it is also figuring out on the fly um, what is going to work, what is not going to work. I think. Um, I thought, I thought for my, based on my own experience, being able to have that good working relationship with the people who are spearheading the commercialization effort is, is important to, to be able to be equal partners in it. It's weird in a way I'm saying equal partners because I'm, I'm not a quite an equal partner. I have no, no equity in the company. Uh, I don't stand to benefit directly. The company does fantastic financially, right? Um, you have some benefits, but they're kind of like an indirect. Yeah, but but to have that kind of like that equal partner and um, have both parties uh, value each other's inputs in, the, in that process, I think is important. I've been, even though I'm not officially part of the company, I've been in, in regular contact 
with the CEO, um, sharing my opinions and thoughts of like what are the strategic next steps we should be taking, what we should be going after, and what we should be not be going after because they're going to be taking up a whole bunch of our time and resources and probably end up in a dead end. Um, yeah, so I think I think having the right people, figuring out the right people to work with is really important. So I guess could you tell us a little bit more about you know what is Trident Desalination, the the company that has licensed the technology? What are they up to these days, and sort of what is your relationship with them? I know we have sort of a sponsored mm -hmm. research agreement, and and you mentioned that you're in regular contact with the CEO. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um. So so there are a lot of uh, friends that um, the company is, is active on. Um, they, the CEO has been actively trying to secure funding uh, to take the company to the next step, which is really building out a company, hiring technicians, hiring engineers, uh, product uh, people as well, and you know, so the client side of things as well. Right. So, so he has been doing a lot of that. I think at the same time, this is also a space that is um, for the past five years or so, or even a bit more, has been unusually active. Uh, the water sector is not, I would, say that, I, I would say that the water sector is not renowned for their innovation, right? Um, the water that we're drinking today, they are based on technologies that were developed over a hundred years ago. Right? The common joke in the in, in folks working in the water technologies that we are, we are using Victorian uh, time technologies. Uh, and really this, this originated a lot of it in, 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 uh, uh, in England over 100 years ago. So, so that's what we've been up to. And, and we don't see a whole lot of innovation out there. Um, and so fortunately, um, for the past five years or even a bit more, right, there's been a lot more interest in some of the, the uh, issues, the challenges in the water industry. Um, there are agencies that are not traditionally involved in this coming into the picture, for example, uh, when they started hydraulic fracturing, of course, the Department of Energy uh, was the lead agency there. And then soon they realized that when there's hydraulic fracturing, there's all these really hypersanite produced water that needs to be treated. So now an energy issue became a water issue, and now they're looking into this. So we're also looking at possibly going after some of this um, funding from federal agencies that pretty much are killing three birds with a stone. We are, we are bringing in money to do further research on this, where at the same time, uh, bringing, building that relationship with a potential client, someone who actually has produced water and we can show that we can treat this and we can then solve their problem. So that's the, the, the practical aspect of it that, that the Department of Energy is interested in as well. Um, and at the same time, there's also, we are outside of all this federal funding. Um, the company has been actively in contact with potential clients um, in the US, Amian Basin for produce water, um, in Canada for related water issues, and even in Middle East, North Africa, uh, South Africa as well. Right? And, and uh, the, the emails that we're getting really is, is international. We get, we get emails, uh, queries from, from people from everywhere, Australia included as well. Um, yeah, so, so that has been uh, what, the, what, what the, the CEO has been up to. That's great. Um, do you, what do you think the sort of first application or, or sort of pilot scale demonstration is likely to be? I think it's going to happen 
soon, I hope, in the next two years. We are, we are also in this um, uh, American Made Hero X Challenge. Is, um, I'm not exactly sure what is the agency running this, but it's, it's definitely federal, um, where they pretty much put out, it's kind of like SpaceX, right? but not for Space Challenge. They have a challenge, they put it out there, and whoever wants can submit um, their solutions. We were part of that challenge. We made it through two rounds, I believe, in the quarterfinals or semifinals. Uh, and part of that is to design uh, and eventually build out pilot plan. Um, so we're in the process of that, and this is where uh, we're coordinating with potential client who's going to supply us with the water that we want to treat, uh, with engineering firms as well who's going to help design and operate the pilot plant. Um, and I hope, yeah, it's it's, it's going to come soon. Um, is either going to, it's probably going to be in the Permian Basin or maybe in Texas. Uh, we've got to figure out the logistics for that. Um, and this is also part of the solar driven, uh, desalination, solar driven water treatment. So the combining that with the solar collector. So oh, and, uh, this, the, the, the overarching idea there is to basically make this into a low carbon footprint, uh, very sustainable process. That's really exciting. Um, okay, I think with the last couple of minutes, we can open it up um, for questions. I see Oren had a question. Um, I'll just read it out loud. So how's the process of being a scientist entrepreneur gone for you at Columbia? Has Columbia <laughs> been supportive of your efforts so far and any advice to other scientist entrepreneurs? Um, I think my department has been very supportive. I mean, I think the School of Engineering has been very supportive. Um, I think the... Um, the, the framework that the university has put in place is also tremendously helpful. I think a lot of things I really lean on CTV for the expertise to hold my hand to, to walk through this process. Uh, I'm trained as a scientist, not as, not as a, 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 a startup tech person. So there are a lot of things I, I admit, I've already admit, I do not know, and I, I'm happily pass it on to the experts to actually deal with it. So I think that has been Great. Um, I think what is also interesting is, is um, I've been visiting a couple of um, universities as part of the whole um, lecture circuit, like going, going around telling everyone the work that we do. Um, and for some of these conversations, we are into um, commercialization of technologies that are discovered in the lab. And this is where I learned that um, different universities have very different norms uh say for example Colombia, there are very clear and strict conflict of interest guidelines uh which means to say that if i'm going to be uh, leading a lab doing research the research if i'm working the research i'm doing is on this technology i cannot have any commercial connections commercial ties that i can potentially benefit from benefit from based on the technology and that means that the startup company Trident, um, I have zero equity in it. And, and that's what it means because I'm still interested in, in doing the research. But that's, that's what's going to hopefully get me tenure and eventually allow me to keep my job and keep doing the science that I do. Um, but that means that you know, I have to forego that part. And that's not always the same for other places. There are other uh, institutes that are much more open. You can actually do both. Right? So, so I think those are some questions. Uh, for thought. 
maybe this is well above my pay grade. Um, yeah, and, and I think the I think overall it's, it's been a um, it's been a good process. Um, CDG has been very supportive, uh, being cognizant of um, the time and effort that I I can actually spare for such efforts and, and really take a huge take huge burdens off me and allow me to focus really on what is my primary role as a researcher, as the PI of my lab, and really do what I need to do to get the research out there and publish papers and write proposals and, and all of that. Um, so I think that has been great. Um, any advice to other scientists, entrepreneurs? Um, I, I think that if there is, if, if there's a technology that, are, that they are really passionate in, um, then they should find a way to, to get it out to the market. I think I see this quite often um, in academia as well, right? Um, us being in academia in the labs, we're so focused on, on publishing papers, uh, attending academic conferences, that we lose that connection with what Columbia University calls the fourth purpose, right? It's making a real impact to the real world. I think I think that is important. And so I think that that is also a big uh, motivator for me to keep doing the work that we do in our lab. Um, I think it's also um, a great tool to recruit students as well. But I think I think more and more, I think I'm seeing students who they want to do research and they want to do the science, but at the same time, they also want to see that their science directly or indirectly can make an impact to the real world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one more question. Uh, what else might we do to help uh, scientists entrepreneurs along their journey to commercialization on their technologies? <laughs> so it sounded like, uh, you know, the conflict of interest management is part of that process, but are there other, yeah, other I, resources we can help with? I, I think Columbia is, is doing a pretty good job of um, and for, for us, for me as, as a, as a tenure track professor, right? So what I have to do every year, uh, is known as the annual summary and absolutely dread it. It's coming up soon. I have to fill out this something like a 30 page document of what I did in the past year, right? And, and basically justify what I did is, is, is good work and it should be considered, uh, for my retention, right? So as part of that, uh, for the School of Engineering, they actually include um, things like commercialization, commercialization of technologies, patents filed, uh, startups, uh, and, and things like that. So this is, this is um, recognitions of the work that we do just beyond publishing papers and attending academic conferences. I think that is, that is tremendously helpful. Um, and I, I also have a colleague who, um, who took, I believe it's one semester, or maybe it was one year of sabbatical, but to be involved in a startup company looking at greener ways to produce aluminum. So, so there's another example of how we can provide support to our faculty members to, to really be able to spend time and resources to do some of these things of bringing their, their technologies to the market. Mm -hmm.